Hey there, welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we're trying, with your help, to make the world 10% nicer by any means necessary. I am your host, Todd Brilliant, and today's guest is none other than world-famous rock climber Kevin Jorgensen. Alongside his climbing partner, Tommy Caldwell, Kevin was the first human being to successfully complete a free climb of the Don Wall of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. This was a huge, huge event that was broadcast live all around the world. Even President Obama phoned Kevin and Tommy to congratulate them for this epic feat. Uh, In fact, you should watch, if you haven't seen it already, the incredible documentary that tells their story, Don Wall, on Netflix or YouTube. It's streaming now. If you haven't seen it, just just watch it. Since that epic climb, since then, Kevin has continued to willingly create for himself huge challenges on rock walls and in real life. We're going to talk about these challenges and, importantly, Kevin's philosophies on how to both attack and learn from formidable challenges that you may or may not be equipped to tackle, at least to start. So if you're a dream big person with zero experience, this episode is for you. This is also the 72nd episode of Nice Work, which means I'm going to flip to page 72 of the book I'm currently reading, which is Team Human by Douglas Rushkoff, and read something out of it to uh, hopefully inspire you or confuse you. We'll see. Uh, 72. Uh... Human beings rely on the organic world to maintain our pro-social attitudes and behaviors. Online relationships are to real ones like internet pornography is to making love. The artificial experience not only pales in comparison to the organic one, but degrades our understanding of human connection. Our relationships become about metrics, judgments, and power, the likes and follows of a digital economy, not the resonance and cohesion of a social ecology. All those painstakingly evolved mechanisms for social connection, for playing as a team, fail in the digital environment. But because mediated exchanges are new on the evolutionary timescale, we don't have a way to understand what is going on. We know that the communication is false, but we don't have a species experience of inaccurate, lifeless, or delayed media transmissions through which to comprehend the loss of organic signal. I mean, how many of you have gotten in text fights that just were ridiculous? Instead of blaming the medium, we blame the other party. We read the situation as a social failure and become distrustful of the person instead of the platform. Team human breaks down. Yeah, amen. Amen to that. The digital exchanges, while they are convenient, they leave so much out. So much when we read uh, uh, facial cues dilated pupils, body language, in person to person, even if they're Zoom calls, they still leave out a lot of information. And it's something that as a species, we're probably not going to catch up to in biological time. So I think it's something more where we need to remember that if you're going to have an important conversation, don't do it by text. Don't do it over a video call in person. In person is where it's at. In fact, the Super Nice Club's goal is to kind of 
be the antidote to social media. I know right now we have to be on social media to gather the troops, but ultimately this is a real life club aimed at getting people off social media and into the real communities around the world to do nice work. All right, let's do this. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with super nice, awesome guy, Kevin Jorgensen. Kevin, Kevin Jorgensen, thank you so much for being on Nice Work with us today. How you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, you are in Santa Rosa, California, one of my favorite spots on the planet. Yeah, born and raised back at home. Had a 10-year vagabond stint, but then now settled back. I think I've done a lot of bigging, bigging upping, big upping of Santa Rosa over the episodes of the podcast. I'm never going to not take the opportunity to just give a little bit of love to the town that I lived in last. What do you think? Are you are you thinking you'll be there lifelong? Are you like Santa Rosa for life? Man, one of the things that gives me comfort in answering that question pretty convincingly is that having the privilege to travel the world basically since I was 18, because that's the path that climbing took me down. I've never been sad to come home, no matter where I am in the world. There's just something special about this place. So I don't know, man. I don't feel like the grass is much greener. Maybe that perspective will change, but at least in the short term, you know, raising a two and a half year old now and starting a small business, it's it's a perfect spot for us to be. Uh, I'm open to that perspective changing, but it's pretty great. It's a great town. Folks, it's in Sonoma County, California, which is, I guess you might say, is wine country. Uh, I think of it as more like big oak country and just beautiful, all sorts of, it's coastal country, it's wildflower country, it's ancient redwood country. It's it's all sorts of different spots in one spot. And, and, And Santa Rosa is not usually considered the destination city in Sonoma County. Yeah, it's uh, not a branding problem, you know? It just gets wrapped in with all of the wine stuff. But it's one of the most active communities that I've ever, you know, spent time in. You know, you compare it to a place like Boulder. It's like, yeah, there aren't triathletes running around everywhere. But, like, everybody gets after it in Sonoma County in some one way or another, whether it's kayaking or mountain biking or road cycling or climbing or whatever it may be. It's this unsung cultural fabric, I feel like, of Sonoma County where, you know, you think it's one thing, but you live here a while and you realize that there's so much more. All right. Santa Rosa, we love you. I think we I think we made that clear. Now, here's the part where I have to apologize to you a little bit as to well as to people that, that know Kevin really well. Um, but we've got to real quickly talk about Don Wall just to catch people up, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we'll reference it in new ways as we go along. But now it's been a few years and I know you've talked about it endlessly, endlessly. But, you know, there are eight billion people that are that are born into the Super Nice Club uh, and you haven't gotten to all of them yet with your story. Plus, I think the story is it's one of those that's, I think, eternally inspiring. You know, I mean, all great mm-hmm. feats are like that. You know, they're inspiring now. They'll be inspiring 100 years from now. Um, can you just quickly talk about sort of the high points and low points for you of climbing this, you know, unclimbable wall? It's, well, it's climbable now, but yeah, uh, thanks, thanks to you two. For sure. So the Don Walls in Yosemite National Park, for those that uh, are, don't know the story, we did this back in 2015. 
And it's on one of the most sheer rock faces on planet Earth, on El Capitan, 3,000 feet tall. And my partner in 2008, you know, he was going through heartbreak, the first real failure he'd suffered in his life in the form of a marriage. He was at a real low point. And he needed a project to distract him from that pain, essentially. So he looked to an area of El Cap that everybody has thought, not even every, no one's even thought that that's impossible because no one even considered that in the realm of possibility. Like that side of El Cap is just not where you just can't climb it, period. So he started throwing himself into it. Um, at the time when he started working on that, I was specializing in a very different kind of climbing, like much, much smaller, small boulders. And uh, I was looking for something new. I had completed a big project of my own. I needed a whole new discipline of the sport to immerse myself into. And I saw this footage of Tommy trying this impossible project. And at the very end of the footage, and the only reason he went up there is because he had already given up on it. This was uh, 2008. And the filmmaker said, well, let's make a film to inspire the next generation. Maybe they'll pick up where you left off. So that's the reason they were up there. In the closing kind of vignette of that piece, basically called out the next generation and said, you want the future? Like, here it is. It takes kids with the talent on the sport climbs and the boulders, applying it in this realm in Yosemite for this to be possible. He was really just laying it down. Uh, it turns out I was the only one to take that seriously because I didn't have his phone number, didn't have his email. I think I sent him a Facebook message and asked him if he needed a partner. A month goes by, two months go by. I'm like, well, obviously he's not going to uh, respond. But he did, and he said, meet me in Yosemite in October. And this began a seven-year journey together to basically make the impossible possible. One of the things that's a little frustrating about sports accomplishments or any accomplishment of that matter is that we celebrate the feat, but not the process. And the, the media latched onto the feat and the 19 days that we were up there on that wall, but there was no inquiry or curiosity into what led to that moment. So in a lot of ways, and I'm actually grateful, I get to cherish 99% of that experience as my own, you know? At the parts of the story that are mine that are never told in any books or in any articles. And uh, in retrospect, I'm really grateful for that because the vast majority of our time on this project was in ambiguity, you know, just like mm -hmm. in, in invisibility, in irrelevance, just toiling away up there on something that was meaningful to us but nobody else. We were up there trying to, a, a goal so lofty, 10, 20, 30 years in the future, maybe it seems like something that it would make sense. And we were like literally trying to pull that into the present day realm of like what's possible. It's basically what it felt like. Days would go by where you're just like, what are we doing up here? Coming back year after year after year after year after year, you know? You're just casting off every season on like glimmers of hope and belief. But then something magical started to happen after like three, four years that belief started to transform into confidence as we improved and we got closer and we could see the, the pieces coming into focus and we could see that it, this thing was possible. From the outside, the result was the same as last year. They still hadn't done it, but from the inside, 
we were seeing, oh my God, we might actually be able to do this. And uh, yeah, January 15th, 2015 or 14th, after 19 days of being on the wall and a week of that being stuck in the same exact spot, uh, it was a very bittersweet moment. You're topping out, you know, it was it was a high point in many ways because it was dream come true. It was a low point in many ways because it was the end of the longest relationship Tommy and I had had uh, with a climber, with a person in our lives. And that chapter was very distinctly coming to a close. Like we could, we knew exactly what was happening in that moment. Like it was over, you know, what do you do after that? Yeah. And that's a big question watching the film. And I urge you, if you're listening to this, it's on Netflix or it's on YouTube streaming, um, watch Don Wall. Even if you don't, if you're listening to this because you're a member of the club and you're like, I, I don't climb anything. I mean, I'm lucky when I climb steps. That's not the point. I mean, you you'll, you might watch this and go, like a lot of people I imagine do, like I did, I'll be honest. I'm like, that is like some serious obsessiveness. That is some single-minded dedication and devotion that I can't relate to because I've never been that single-minded and obsessed about anything in my life, mm-hmm. which I find inspiring. It's also it's inspiring. It's also kind of like, my God, is is that what it's going to take for me to achieve my goals? Hmm, maybe. I mean, it, yeah. I think that the lessons there are are very applicable. It's it's stunning, though. What you said, nineteen days. 19 days on a wall. I mean, if you're a climber, maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal. I don't know. 19 days on a wall is incredible. Uh, and then it's you're watching this film, and it, it's very clear the question, like, wow, what's what are they gonna what are they gonna do next? What kind of depression is this gonna lead to for these two after it's over? After the cameras go away? After you know, uh, all the big TV networks. You got congratulated by the president Obama, right? It was like, insane. He was like tweeting us yeah. as, as we were topping out and we were like missing right. his phone calls on the summit of El Cap. And like <laughs> nothing made sense anymore. We left yeah. the ground 19 days before and blue was blue. And then mm-hmm. we top out and blue was purple to everybody else but us. Blue was still blue and our, like nothing had changed. But mm-hmm. for the rest of the world, everything changed because everyone knew about this thing and looked at us and had elevated us and this experience and this challenge to such a level that we couldn't relate to. This was just our baby that we've been like, you know, watching it mature and grow up for the last seven years. And now it's off on its own, you know, uh, but it was a very different experience for everybody else from the outside watching in than the one that we had from the inside looking out. So watch the film, folks, and just check out the amount of work that goes into years. It's, it's kind of glanced over, and you just mentioned it. There's years and years and years of work that goes into these 19 days, just like there's tens of thousands of hours of batting practice for ball players before they make their records or whatever it is. Um, and it isn't shown, and the growth isn't necessarily on camera, it's it's inferred, but like you said, it it all of that growth. These are private moments for you. These are private struggles in wrestling where you you must have been asking, "What the hell am I doing? Am I crazy? I'm leaving my mm-hmm. family behind for months at a time. I'm leaving everybody I know behind. I don't know this dude, Tommy. Like in the first 
right? When you first started doing it, yeah, you had you took a giant, giant leap of faith. No mm-hmm. pun intended, because you're a climber. Um, but you took a giant leap of faith on this. Was a lot of that because of how much you just respected Tommy's craft and abilities? Yes. Um, you know, early on, it, I didn't know I was making a seven-year commitment on October 1st, 20, you know, 2009. I had yeah. no idea what I was getting into. I was the pupil and he was the mentor, essentially. This was not a, a partnership of equals early on. I was in the I was in the very early chapters of a reinvention. I was a master at highball bouldering, at balancing risk and reward without ropes, and I had pushed that discipline as far as I was willing to push it. So I didn't just need a new project, I needed a whole new trajectory for my career that didn't involve climbing without a rope. So I drove headfirst into something that was very, very new to me. And if anyone's been through a reinvention, whether it's a, a career or a relationship or sport, that shit's hard. Like it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just watching your uh, your ego get pulled out of your nostrils and just, you know, flush down the toilet. Just, you know, you're like, right, I'm supposed to be good at this sport, you know, and I'm up there those early years feeling like I can't do anything because I can't. I'm just so out of my element. Uh, but I was inspired by Tommy's vision. I was inspired to learn from him. And I think by the second year, just my personality, once I start something, I finish it. Like I, I don't leave things, like I'm very careful about what I say yes to because when I, when I say yes, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to see it through. So by the second year, I knew that that was it. Like, it's all good. Um, yeah. So it was only until the last, you know, year that we were up there that, uh, it really felt like a partnership of equals and it wasn't, it wasn't the, the pupil mentor relationship that it was at the beginning. And that was really important because for the longest time, I felt like a step parent to this project. And that's, it was a very awkward relationship for me to have with it, but one that I just had to go through before I really felt, you know, worthy of being there and worthy of this being mine as much, or at least as part of it as, as, as Tommy's, if that makes sense. No, it does. And clearly, he probably told you many, many times, look, bro, if you weren't the best, you wouldn't be here right now. You know, he's a man of few words. That might have helped. But um, yeah, so he never said that to you. No, man, I feel bad. All right. Just pretend that he said it. Yeah. No. So it's been a few years since the climb now. And I'm sure that when Don Wall came out, it sort of re it, it blew up that balloon all over again to totally. a degree, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it took but, forever yeah, to a, get made. You know, it didn't come out till what twenty eighteen or something like that. What's that's that? So like good, three years went by, and then the balloon gets reinflated again, and people yeah. experience the story in a whole new way. Documentaries don't go quickly. No, you know, ask ask Scott Keneally about that one. I will. We we're overdue for a catch up. Uh, it's been a few years now, and you have a young son, Edsel, right? Mm-hmm. Now the years have gone by, what are sort of like the big insights that you have on the experience as a whole? Now you can say, hey, this did X for my life and my growth. You know, what would you say like your, your top 
takeaways are, so to speak. Oh, boy. If you could look back and and say to Kevin, you know, of seven years ago, hey, man, here's what you're going to get out of this. So, you know, in your low moments, like mm-hmm. you could go back and give a pep talk. What were those What were those sort of kernels, those nuggets of wisdom? Um, there's a quote from an old British philosopher that I disagree with highly, Jeremy Bentham, and he says that, Nature has placed mankind of the, under the governance of two sovereign masters, pleasure and pain. And I think it's it's really common to live one's life in that way, where you seek one and avoid the other. You know, you try to put the bumper lanes on things in a way where that, that optimizes for one and suppresses the likelihood of another. And maybe it's just the nature of being a climber or the way that I'm hardwired, but you know, I think that we discover what we're really capable when we smash those two worlds together. Like it's okay for those things to overlap. And when you're in pursuit of this question, and I think this is the question that drove Tommy and I much more than the goal itself, but this one of what are we capable of? Uh, You know, for us, it was a particular rock climb that was the expression of that question. We were exploring it on that canvas, but that can be done in any number of ways. It could be done in music, it could be done in business, it could be done in art, you know, you name it. For us, it was climbing a rock, but the goal wasn't climbing the rock, the goal was answering the question. And we happened to find a challenge that rode the line between possible and impossible so closely that uh, it led to a really rich experience filled with uncertainty and intimidation and pain and fear and stress, but also joy and jubilation and uh, celebration. But you don't get the opportunity to experience something like that if you're unwilling to combine these worlds of pain and pleasure. And I think that too often the presence of hardship is interpreted as a red flag of some kind when really it can also, in some circumstances, be an indicator that you're on the right path. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I've learned the most about that experience, is that when, you're, when your ambition exceeds your ability, like hardship is inevitable, anytime you're trying to close those gaps. But if you can go into it knowing that fact so that you can expect it that way it's not so surprising when it comes and when it does you just embrace it you know when we left the ground on december 27th we knew what we were getting into we knew it was going to be hard and the first week went great not to say it wasn't hard but every day that we were climbing we did exactly what we set out to do and then on day seven i got stuck and i got stuck again and again and again and again, and again, 12 attempts across seven days on one pitch, cut fingers, pitch, full rest pitch days, 15? pitch 15, the whole bit. And, uh, but my reaction when that struggle began was like, well, this is supposed to be hard. This is why we do what we do, you know? So I just bear hug that shit. I'm like, I'm not going down <laughs> without a fight. And I think, I, so the last thing, you know, the first two expecting it, that hardship going into it, embracing it when it arrives and last kind of like in a slightly twisted way enjoying that hardship while you're wrestling with it as opposed to just 
I don't know. Maybe you, you can internalize hardship however you want. And don't get me wrong, like this is the most privileged form of hardship, like purely elective. I'm putting myself in this position. I'm not talking about like right. actual Good point. Good point. hardship yeah. in life. This is like, this is nothing. But, uh, you know, in this very privileged circumstance, yeah, you know, I'm enjoying this hardship. And it uh, allowed me to maintain a mindset while struggling with that pitch of, uh, you know, this, this is what I'm here for. This is, mm-hmm. you know, I want to be right where I am. And it did pull the best out of me, you know, and I did get to discover what I was capable, of, but only because I was willing to really force these two worlds of pain and pleasure together, because that's, I feel like what it takes to, to, to reinvent, to improve, to strive, whatever it is that you want to become, whatever future self you can envision that you're trying to pull into the present. Like that's not easy work, no matter what. Uh, but if you can expect that it's going to be a little hard, embrace it when it becomes hard, and kind of enjoy the ride while you're dealing with it, it's not always going to be hard. You know, it's so temporary. It's like it's such a small part of the experience. Now, since the climb, you have expanded. Well, you've expanded your family, and that's, I mean, child rearing is the definition of pleasure and pain, and no kidding, and and, and guilt and happiness and all the wonderful emotions. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's amazing. You've also decided to give birth to uh, a giant, giant structure. Uh, <laughs> your new project, Session Climbing Gym. <laughs> one of the best climbing gyms it will be on on the west coast um and uh you you didn't go into this as a business major right i mean you're, no. you're not you're not a businessman so this was a <laughs> this is a sheer rock wall of another sort right yeah um but that confidence i'm mean, absolutely i'm not making a huge um a huge uh, record this isn't you know hard to see that clearly you're going into this with lessons learned from you're climbing, right? Definitely, definitely. And new partners mm-hmm. that you didn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, you've had to become a um, apprentice all over again. Yep. When did this start? When did you start building session? Where is it going to be? When is it going to open? Why should people become members? Mm-hmm. Let's get into session uh, and how the Super Nice Club membership. We have a lot of members in the Bay Area. Um, and I want to get as many of them that are into climbing there and especially the ones that aren't into climbing. Mm -hmm. How do we, let's talk it up. This is your time to just, yeah, I mean, the way I spend my non climbing life outside of family, it's prioritized around experiences. I wish I either had access to or were aware of when I was younger, kind of creating the future that I wish I had, um, or also just broadening access to this life-changing sport. So I have a whole nonprofit thing that we can go into that does that. And I wanted to build something that was going to be around for 30, 40, 50 years for my hometown. That was just the most modern, inviting expression of what indoor, you know, active communities could be. You know, it's centered around climbing, but it has a lot more than just climbing. Um, but it all began, I mean, I'd been thinking about this 
long before the Dawn Wall. But when the Dawn Wall happened, it stars started to align where like, oh, like partners became available, resources were there, people were willing to take meetings and just like, hey, I have this crazy dream. Like, you want to help me make it happen? And that ball started rolling down the hill. And then it started rolling up the hill and I pushed it, you know, for five years. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like you said, it was like a, it was and continues to be a very self taught, but also mentored reinvention of just learning what it takes to build something from scratch. But having the privilege to visit climbing gyms all across the world and see what that feeling is when you walk into a place that just pulls you in. You've never been, you've never climbed anything before, but you walk in the door and it's, there's a feeling to it. You look up and you're equal parts inspired and intimidated at the same time. You're drawn to the walls, but there's a, there's a little bit of hesitation there, but it's an environment that's welcoming. It's a community that wants to grow. Um, and so really, I mean, the purpose in the, of this whole endeavor and the reason we called it session was around this notion of time well spent. Like time is the most precious thing that we have. And our North Star as a small business is making sure that whether you work for and with us or you're someone walking through the door to experience climbing for the first time, when you leave, you feel like that was time well spent. You know, that's the most important. I think much more important than how people spend their dollars is how they spend their time. And if people are walking through your doors and spending time in a place that uh, you built and you're inviting the community to, you got to do that right. You got to honor that that the way that people are spending their time. And so that's our goal with it. You know, whether you own a pair of climbing shoes or not, we're going to welcome everybody through those doors. Um, and we hope to do so, you know, in spring of next year, January, February, March, somewhere in there. That's great. And where is it at in Santa Rosa? It's if you're driving on 101, it's at the intersection of 12 and 101. You can't miss it. Okay. It happens to be on the southeast quadrant if you were taking the 12 exit. You can't miss the building. It's a it's a big one. <laughs> Does it when you walk in, will you be greeted by that rank smell of sweat and socks? Well, if we designed our HVAC system right, no. And that's the thing. <laughs> oh, like, bummer. <laughs> most uh most climbing gyms like don't even have, you know, fresh air in there, you know, or like yeah. the ability to heat or cool it. It's like we've come so far, you know, and I really wanted to like yeah. build that that modern expression of of what a climbing gym can be. And so if you are a Bay Area parent, right? always looking for things to do with your kids, always looking for disciplines to get them into. Is it going to be martial arts? Is it going to be soccer, baseball? Tell me what climbing can do for kids. Oh, man. What I love about climbing is that it's the most natural thing that we do. It's one of the most basic movement modalities there is. You know, running, walking, swimming, climbing. It's one of the core arguments that was made behind climbing's inclusion in the Olympics, which it will debut uh, August 3rd this year for the first time. Like bouldering? Bo bouldering, sport, and lead. All one, one medal, you have to compete in all three disciplines. Later on, there'll be a medal for each, but in the first year, the athletes compete in all three. But it's a big, okay. it's a big moment for the sport. You know, it's, it's growing up. And 
I think one of the reasons is that kids already do it. We already know how to climb. You know, it's just a matter of putting it in front of them while it's still natural. At a certain point, we stop climbing the trees and the fences and we, we pick up a ball or we pick up this or pick up that. And, you know, we start to lose touch with this very native movement modality that we're all born with. Um, so I'm a big fan of putting climbing in front of kids when it's still that, that native movement modality because the connection between, you know, mind, body, and spirit while you're climbing, it's so special. You know, it's like a moving meditation. There is no scoreboard. You know, success is self-defined. Everyone that is in that, if there are 300 people in a climbing gym at the same time, they're all experiencing their own versions of success and failure. It's very personal. I think that's a really unique thing. And then also men and women participate in climbing in equal numbers. Like it's a very inclusive sport in that sense. As a sport doesn't, uh, prefer a certain body type necessarily over another or a certain gender's body type over another, which I think is, is really unique. Um, and last, like I call it a cradle to grave sport. Like my son has been climbing the wall in his room since he was like one and a half, you know? And then we could talk about Rusty who's what, like pushing 80 now, 70 something. And he climbs. I think Rusty's 92. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he's climbing all the time. He's climbing hard as ever. You know, he was just out at the coast today working on his project. So uh, I just love that about it. I've only been to a climbing gym maybe three times in my life. So I'm not a climber. I've gone out there, played with the walls. Um, What I did really like the most about it was how cooperative it is. When you're a stranger, like I'd show, I showed up with, well, I went once with Rusty, then I went a few times on my own. People I didn't know, they're like, hey, you want to, they would just help. It was completely cooperative, not at all competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you like competitive things, it's still highly competitive because you compete with yourself like mad. And also if you have similarly skilled partners, yeah, you can make it competitive. You can okay. make it competitive if you want to. But if you're not a competitive person and you're looking for an athletic endeavor that can also be very contemplative, uh, climbing is pretty great. Um, yeah, it's pretty great. You once said, I read it somewhere that you said this, Uh-oh. you said, if you need, if you need discipline, climbing will teach you discipline. If you lack confidence, it'll give you the opportunity to build confidence. If you live your life in fear, it'll help you face those fears. That right there is a hell of a recommendation to take up climbing, uh, bouldering, uh, checking out your local climbing wall gym you have one you may not know it but there's probably one near you uh it may just be in a tin shed somewhere and it's you know just done by some some local aficionados but it's there it's near you yeah it's true you know i i think the context of that quote was in respect to my nonprofit work of building walls for kids who would never otherwise have the opportunity and the context is that it was saying that climbing is like a mirror you know like any what you need, it will provide naturally without instruction, without curriculum. You can tell a lot about a person about when you watch them climb for the first time, or even if they've been climbing for 20 years, you can still tell a lot about someone. What are their eyes doing while they're climbing? What is their body language when they're off the wall after they've just fallen? You know, how hard are they trying in the moments uh, that are actually restful? You know, do they have built up stress? You can tell without like psychoanalyzing people, but you climb long enough, 
and you can you can really tell a lot by by folks. So it's this wonderful canvas for learning about yourself and for improving parts that maybe you want to improve. Um, and it's just so darn fun. I mean, it's so fun. So you mentioned that your nonprofit, that nonprofit is One Clan. Let's let's get into One Clan. Sure. What's that all about? Um, so coming full circle to what I mentioned a minute ago about um, providing those opportunities that I wish I had as a kid or for those that are you know unaware that this sport even exists. Basically, I just want to well, let me rewind a little bit. Like climbing gyms are really expensive. <laughs> if there's anything I've learned in building session, it's really expensive. So you have to put them in places that people can afford them. And that as a byproduct, which has been happening for 30 years, excludes a lot of people. So okay. I wanted to introduce the question was, what would it take to introduce a million kids to climbing? That was the the genesis of one climb, creating a uh, a model that could achieve that goal, even if it took 30 years. So the model was, what keeps people from climbing? How do you get that many people, in, how many kids in, to climb? Well, it can't cost anything, and they shouldn't have to go anywhere. Cost barrier needs to go away. Proximity barrier needs to go away. Because those two things are very, very high hurdles as it stands today. So I looked at the Boys and Girls Club of America, uh, as a network that serves over 4 million kids a year through 4,000 different clubs across the country and said, what if we could put climbing walls where kids already are in these boys and girls clubs, where they're already comfortable spending time. They don't have to go anywhere else, but we don't just build them a wall. We connect them to the people behind the sport as well. So we link them up with that nice, but albeit expensive climbing gym down the road so that mm -hmm. they have a connection for the kids that like it, they have a connection to the community that they can get introduced to. They have another facility to begin exploring that interest and being supported in exploring that interest and basically creating a new layer in the pyramid, a new base of the pyramid for how people, how kids in particular, become aware of the sport. Right now, the base of that pyramid costs 20 plus dollars per visit, uh, plus rental gear, and is in only certain neighborhoods in the country. And I wanna put climbing walls in every boys and girls club or even that after school center uh, in the country and just create like thousands of free, no cost, no proximity barrier opportunities for kids to get on a climbing wall. And then if they wanna explore it, they can go up the pyramid into the climbing gyms, they can up the right. pyramid and go mentored and, and get outside but I just want to like capture those kids while that movement is still native in their bodies because they're young and they can take to it. And uh, yeah, I just want to make that this sport more, you know, inclusive and accessible and get a million kids climbing. <laughs> so, so where are you at? Where's where it at, at so far with Boys and Girls Club? Yeah. So the idea and what is, can listeners do to, to, to participate and get involved? So let's see. The idea started in 2010, built the first one in Sonoma, uh, California. And then after the Dawn Wall, I decided that that's, that's what I want to focus my nonprofit attention on is this idea. So I incorporated it with a, a co-founder 
And uh, off to the races. We built the second one in St. Louis, took everything we learned from Sonoma, kind of refined it in St. Louis. And then we built another one in L.A. with the shoe company Tom's. And then mm -hmm. from there, we took on a big partnership with Adidas to build 10 walls across the country. We're in the middle of uh, building and opening those 10 right now. And we've done a handful of others. So I think we're at like 14 walls and counting. We have two going into Brooklyn and the Bronx this summer uh, just to prove the designs for those. So this is this is very much like an evergreen project. There's no summit to this one. I'll, I'll be working right. on this still. Yeah, you know, 20, 30 years from now. So if somebody is in a town and they have a boys and girls club, is there something they can do if they said, you know what, I want to get one of the one climb walls into my boys and girls club? Is there an avenue for that? Not presently. Just like, I mean, okay. these things are, they're not cheap uh, to build. No. But I would say just reach out through the website, oneclimb.org, mm -hmm. and let us know that, you know, this is something that your community needs because we're constantly on the hunt for, uh, you know, donors and corporate partners who want to bring this to their hometown. We've got a machine to build it. You know, we've built one of these. We built one in Atlanta, start to finish in seven weeks. Um, okay. So we, we've got our way of doing it that just that works. And so yeah. if you're into climbing and there's a boys and girls club in your town, and you want to get kids into this, you can make it happen. You just reach out, and any any of us can fundraise. Doesn't matter if it's. $500 or $50,000 or $200,000. We all know who we need to know to raise the money, especially Boys and Girls Club. People love getting involved with mm -hmm. things that help out the Boys and Girls Club. So um, that's that's one of my challenges, folks. If you're into climbing, you have a Boys and Girls Club, take a look into it. It could be really fun for you to do with a group of your friends. Like, hey, guys, let's put a wall in there. Let's just make it happen. Start yep. out with oneclimb.org. And get going on that. And let the Super Nice Club know about it. That's, you know, anything we can do to help activate people in your community. Um, send them newsletters. I mean, send them emails. Uh, we will. We'll reach out. So if anybody out there in the Super Nice Club is, is, is wanting to do this, we will help however we're able to. Uh, before we leave the nonprofit thing, um, let's give a little shout out to the BRAD Foundation. Hell yeah. Um, BRAD Foundation also up here. Uh, Sonoma County, which is put together in honor of your friend, Brad Parker. Is that right? That's right. right. Uh, what do we need to know about B-Rad? Uh, B-Rad, I mean, inspired by Brad Parker, he had a tragic fall uh, in August of 2014, started it in his memory. The uh, It's also about kids and the next generation. Our, our pillars are health, adventure, and stewardship. We have a chapter here in Sonoma County. We have a chapter in Kauai, and we activate programs along those three pillars. And they have great stickers, by the way. Like best stickers in the in the nonprofit world are from BRAD. So the links in the show notes, but b-radfoundation.org. It's a great it's a great organization. Um, I know there's a lot of organizations that you're already involved with, everybody, but here's another one for you: BRAD Foundation worth checking out. Absolutely. Speaking of young climbers, we have a member question from a super nice club member. All right. 13 year old, 13 year old Dorian in Healdsburg. He is a, he's just a terrific young human being and he's a big, big fan of yours, uh -oh. Kevin. 
Uh, he's a current member of the Vertical Vipers climbing team. Awesome. Uh, but he's, he's also super geeked on your new gym. His question is, do you remember the first time you climbed and did you know then that it was something that you loved? The intuitive or expected answer would be yes, but the, my memory of it is no. Um, when people ask when I started climbing, my common answer is that I never stopped. Uh, it's just that at around age 11, I became aware of climbing gyms because I went to the grand opening of Vertex. But I had been climbing things my whole life leading up to then. Climbing gyms just offered another opportunity to really refine those skills. I didn't know there was a sport behind it. Um, and even after that grand opening, it was a slow burn of going every other weekend or who knows how often before something happened. I can't put a finger on it. But then at some point I was in there five, seven days a week, you know, as much time as I could, you know, after school and in the summer. And it was all, it was my thing. It was very clear. Like, any other extracurriculars after school. I think I was into pole vaulting at the time. I was like, nope, like everything drops away. All the focus goes on to climbing. And I started, you know, he's on the Vertical Vipers team. I was on the youth team there at Vertex and rose through those to go to nationals and worlds and that kind of thing. And my, my world kind of opened up out of, it really began in that youth competitive world. Um, but there's lots of different ways to get into it. But the short answer is no. But uh, also, yes, you know, it's like it was in my DNA. You know, like I, I came out a climber. That's just who I am. I'm going to recommend that you and Dorian figure out a way to climb together at least once. Yes. You'll see what I mean. You'll see what I mean about Dorian. He's just such a cool kid. It, you'll, you'll notice it right away. And you'll want to bring him with you on every climb. Cool. You will. You'll be like, Let's oh my it. God, I just found my mascot. And then he'll be your mentor and then he'll be your teacher at some point. I love it. That's how it works, right? Yep. Mascot to mentor to teacher. It's, it's a classic. <laughs> yep. Anyway, that's that's our member question. Thank you very much, Dorian. Great question. Uh, Kevin, what's your, if you, if I can, I'm going to on the spot. Um, what's your vision of a nicer world? Where does it start? Oh, man. Yeah. Big question. Dang. And it could just be as simple as like, hey, man, it's it's a million kids climbing. Yeah, I mean, a million kids climbing would be great. But, you know, you have to be at a, a certain level of peace with yourself, I feel like, to even have the bandwidth to even think about giving, you know, in a way that can have like a stone in the pond, these positive ripples we try to put out in the world, like having the stone to the strength to throw the stone to begin with is often the most important thing, you know? So if you don't feel like you have that, focus on that first, because you can't have any ripples, positive ripples in the world. If you don't have the strength to pick up the stone, you know? Yeah. It's a great starting point. Absolutely. I'm going to change gears here because I did some some uh, Google rabbit holing uh -oh. before we hopped on this call. And I'm going to quickly read to you the top 10 most dangerous sports, starting with number 10. I'm so curious. Number 10 is bullfighting. Number nine. I mean, of course, right? Bullfighting. Yeah, it's pretty. Why dangerous. is that higher? Number, uh, we'll find out. Let's go through it. Number nine is polo. 
You know, you've got that like heavy mallet and the the, uh, maybe with, the horses, on the horses. Kicking each other. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess it's I guess it's super deadly. Number eight is rugby. Yeah. Uh, makes sense. I think by deadly they might be talking about just like, you know, you can break a lot of bones. Number seven is a sport that I got obsessed with for a little while. I've never played hyalai. You know hyalai? Never heard of it. J a i a l a i. They have these like wicker baskets. You know when you're a kid and they have those little plastic. Um, baskets and you can like toss a ball to each other yeah. with them. they're kind of curved like there's an adult version of that huh. with these big wicker, ba- wicker baskets and uh, a hard rubber ball 200 miles an hour it'll kill somebody what? instantly if you hit and hit yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Gnarly. crazy high a lot I think only in Miami right now in the states anyway uh, number six is hunting whoa shocker okay that one makes sense uh, so does the next one. Number five, skydiving. Number four, surfing. I saw on the front page of the Chronicle today that great white shark numbers are uh, increasing. Good news. Number three, racing. Yeah. Number two, boxing. Boxing makes sense. Yep. And number one is mountaineering. All right. Mountaineering considered the most dangerous. And that includes, you know, I, I think pretty much a lot of the climbing, right? But, so I thought, okay, wow, that is the most dangerous sport is climbing. I looked up the numbers, 30 climbers die per year in the US, which is a tragedy. And you probably know most of the people or a lot of the people, you know, too many of the people, you know, because you're in that rank of people that are Mm -hmm. the top climbers. But that's out of 5 million North American climbers. All right. So then I also looked up how many truckers, long haul truckers die every year. Uh, 900 out of 5 million. So, you know, I'm sure there's thousands more truckers that die from, you know, related things like obesity, yeah. heart issues related to inactivity. So by my my numbers, driving a truck is something like 43 times deadlier than rock climbing. I believe it. Right? Lifestyle choices are often way more deadly than... Yeah. So I've just got to think that Climbing, although it has this rep of being really dangerous, and when you look at you on Don Wall, you're like, oh my God, I can't, it's, it's so much less dangerous than like truck driving or sitting in a cubicle where inactivity skyrockets your blood pressure, your heart risks, your cancer risks. I'm asking you all of this because this is your career. This is what you do. You're married. You have a kid. You're married to Jackie. Um, you're a new father. Did that ever come up in your relationship or does it still, does Jackie ever voice concern? And how has that conversation sort of evolved over the years? Like, mm-hmm. I've got a dangerous job, babe. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, I mean, I mentioned it a little bit ago about like the relationship Tommy and I had with the Don Wall was longer than any other that we had had in climbing or in, uh, you know, partners. So we were working on the Donwall when we met our current wives. You know, we went through the full courtship, you know, got engaged, uh, married and had kids the whole bit. So, but I met Jackie in uh, 2012. So we were three or four years into it. And yeah, I don't, I, at first I don't think she really knew to the extent that we were taking risks up there, or really what we were doing up there, but as we spent more time together. She started to understand a bit more. And the way I've heard her describe it is that she just, all she can do is trust me. You know, if she, mm. that's it. That's all she can really do. And if she can't be at peace with that, uh, cause it's not like I'm going to stop climbing anytime soon, then 
you know, that's just going to be a hard experience, you know, overall, as far as being with someone. So to her credit, you know, she has, you know, she really has not put any bumper lanes on my ambition when it comes to climbing. She's giving me, you know, the freedom to pursue my passions, uh, even after becoming a father and, um, you know, so looking forward, my next big trip is, it's like opening a new chapter, like opening the Donwall was a new chapter. It's a style of climbing that I haven't done before. It's going on an expedition. We're going to Eastern Greenland for a month. We're going to take wow. two flights, a helicopter, a 200 mile sail, and then we'll be at base camp and then we'll climb <laughs> for a month. Um, but you know, I've chosen a partner that's going to fulfill a role similar to Tommy. He's been to this uh, Eastern Greenland 13 times. He's done 80 expeditions of this sort of throughout his career. So, yeah. you know, people say that like a Lebecki expedition is like kind of a life goal because they're unforgettable. So I'm really excited to go on this trip. But it is, you know, objectively more dangerous probably than the Donwall just because oh. we're more remote, you know, we've got sat phone capabilities only as far as communication goes. Uh, there's no quick rescues out there. We're climbing things that have never been done before. It's not like there's bolts in the rock that we can just clip into and whatnot. So, right. you know, there's polar bears, there's, you know, there's all kinds of stuff up there. So, uh, but that's what I'm excited to go experience, you know, and we're both dreading, you know, the countdown to July 28th a little bit when I have to drive to the airport to go on that. It's going to be hard on Edsel. He's going to be really confused. But, you know, in respect to, like, parenthood and fatherhood in particular, like, I want to just live by example. And I want to – I don't want to stop climbing or stop um, pursuing these, you know, these dreams and these passions just because I have a family, I'm going to be smart about those decisions that I make when we get there. You bet I'll be filtering the options of first ascents by the risk profile that they present, you know, and I'll be choosing accordingly. But uh, the choice to not go at all just because it's a month away, it's hard. But, you know, I want Edsel to be, when he's old enough, inspired by these trips and by these ambitions and help him dream big about, you know, whatever he wants to do. So if it's, it's hard, but I also feel like, I don't know if necessary is too strong of a word. Of course it's not necessary, but as far as how I've chosen to, you know, be in my relationship and be in my profession and be uh, a parent, this feels like a net positive overall. Well, and I think a lot of us would, I think we would prefer, I, I maybe I'm speaking for myself, I would much rather be eaten by a polar bear than like have a coronary in a cubicle. I'm just saying, you know, it's it's a better story for my kids, you know. <laughs> Not really envisioning the last moments, but just, you know, the final, yeah, that's just kind of a cool way to go. It's yeah. very natural. Yeah. It's very natural. You once posted that climbing has felt a lot different since becoming a dad, that climbing has felt heavy. Do you still feel that way? Or was that something that you had to pass through as a new dad? Yeah, it was a phase for sure. Okay. It, yeah. Okay. I think it was yeah. just a period. 
And at the time that I wrote that, we had lost recently another close member of the climbing community that had spent a lot of time in Yosemite, so our paths had crossed. And um, so there was a little bit of of grief uh, underlying that particular post and that coinciding with being, you know, a fresh parent. Uh, Yeah, but it doesn't, I'm excited, climbing excites me now, you know, it, it doesn't feel heavy. Who's going to make the uh, the U.S. Olympic team? How how did that get sorted out? It got sorted out, God, two years ago now through the qualification oh, okay. because of the delay. But um, right, the whole plague thing. Yeah. So yeah. Nathaniel Coleman, um, Colin Duffy for the men, and Brooke Rabatou and Kyra Condry. So the team's amazing. You know, I think they have a really good shot at the Olympics. You know, there was two consecutive World Cups held in Salt Lake the last two weekends. Brooke was on the podium of both of those. She's looking okay. really strong. It's going to be exciting. Who's who, What country is the big, would you say, is like traditionally the big climbing country? Oh, man. It seems that countries will go through phases of kind of being on the top when it comes to competitive performance for a long time, you know, it was the French team sweeping the podium. And then maybe for a while that would shift to the British team or team Japan. Uh, competition climbing in the U S is a younger kind of focus and discipline, but it's become mm-hmm. much more advanced really, really quickly our team has gone from not super competitive on the global stage 10 years ago to extremely competitive in a very short period of time. So I think, you know, athletes aging into coaching and then bringing that next generation, that's kind of what we're seeing is that my generation had gone through the competition circuit or maybe a half generation before me learned a ton, but comp climbing is super nascent, but now they have so much wisdom to pass along to the kids that are now the ones standing on the podium that uh, it's just really cool to see that trajectory. And probably more sponsors are interested now too, right? It's a lot easier to, I mean, it's never easy to make a career out of climbing, but it's, it's more possible. There are more opportunities for that today than there were 20 years ago. And if you want to get into climbing as a career, uh, it all starts with session climbing gym in Santa Rosa, California. You can start your career in the spring of 2021 with your membership. You're, <laughs> hey, you're, you have a super nice... Your commission's in the mail. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and make sure to use the discount code. The super nice club. <laughs> Do you have a super nice challenge? Uh, something you can issue to the listeners of this podcast, the members of the club, that they can do to make their world and the world just a little bit nicer? Some sort of Some sort of habit or action they can take? Oh, man. It's probably a roundabout way of doing it, but I would, I would come back to like challenging that old Bentham quote of, you know, seeking the pleasure and avoiding the pain and challenging people to, within reason, collide those worlds um, in the pursuit of the question of what they're capable of, you know, and if that's making the world a little bit nicer, um, do it in a way that's a little bit uncomfortable for you, because that's probably going to yield the best result. Find your path in the discomfort. Yes. 
It's it's that's such a tough one, and it applies to everything. It does. It applies to the the work that we do. It applies to our workouts. It applies to our personal relationships because it's a thin line, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, this is uncomfortable. It's painful, but it's not supposed to be repetitively painful without a lesson, right? Yeah. It's not it's not just supposed to be painful, right? That's that's self abuse at that point. Um, but you've got to figure it out for yourself where you're still getting growth from the pain uh, without. Uh, it's like, you know, what is it, you know, when you're stretching, right, it's supposed to hurt a little bit, but if you stretch too far, it can tear for sure. (laughs) So it's just that, that spot, right. That you can, that you can get to. And we all have to, we have to learn how to ride in that space for ourselves. Um, I just butchered what Kevin was trying to say. So just listen to what he said, not to my rambling postscript. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, you get to ask, you get to be the host for a second. You can ask a question question of me any question you want uh what's one piece of unfinished business that you have hanging out there that you're trying to wrestle into reality i'm curious oh i'm sure you have 20 but yeah okay so i have two right now um right now i'm in fairfax california uh beautiful little slice of marin county expensive little slice of marin county and I am going to be spending the next five days with my writing partner, Corey, to finish a long overdue script. Very long overdue script. That, that Well, I finished it a long time ago, but it, it just wasn't what I wanted it. So I asked Corey to come in and rewrite it with me. So we're demolishing it and starting it over. It's going to be much, much better. It's really hard to revisit something that you finished uh, and then do it all over again because just, it's hard to get the same inspiration, right? So I'm treating this as a brand new project, but it's been dragging out. The second thing is this. It's the Super Nice Club. Um, the Super Nice Club is, um, I've been meaning to overhaul it in, in, a, in a way that I can't really get into right now, but we have investors, um, we have resources, and the club is going to actually start to... Um, become a thing and have the ability to be more than just a logo and some Instagram posts where say, hey, do a little bit nicer and selling some merchandise, but actually doing some good in the world, getting people together more regularly in the world and building the community aspect. All of that takes money. I don't know if you know that, but uh, you know, building businesses and community takes money. And when people give you money to build your business, Ah, there's some responsibility that comes with that. Yeah, you gotta got you gotta have really good plans. Yep. And so that's that's my current unfinished business. Love it. Is is the Super Nice Club and a film script, and they're both exciting, and they are both really humbling and leads and lead to big doubts, big periods of, of self doubt, and am I good enough? Can I make this happen? All this good fun stuff. Yeah. You know? And then you wake up the next day, and go, of course I'm good enough. What do you, I'm good enough for everything. You know, that whole thing, you know, like I'm sure you have those doubts. Like what if, what if session sucks? What if I open it and, and not enough people come or, you know, there's all the different things or if it runs over budget or if my lead investor gets cold feet, I'm sure that you've, you've had all this stuff. It's tough. But again, wow, how privileged are we to be able to be working on these sorts of projects, Mm -hmm. you know, versus people who are working to get clean water. Totally. (laughs) the drink totally. right so i get it but it's still it's still real to me yeah these struggles are still real to me and i get that they are the kind of struggles that a lot of people wish they could have for sure so i'm definitely grateful for these struggles 
I'm also grateful for your time. You did this whole interview while Edsel was taking his afternoon nap. Snoozing like a champ. That is appreciated. Edsel, I would like to thank you if in years from now you end up going down a rabbit hole listening to all of your dad's old interviews. I doubt you'll get to this one because there's like super famous people that have interviewed him. But if you do, I'm thanking you now for being such a sound sleeper. That's awesome. Uh, I kicked my two kids out onto the front porch. It's like 98 degrees outside because they're making so much noise. I hope they're still alive. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much, Kevin. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. I'm excited about all that you're doing. I'm excited about One Climb. Org. Again, everybody, if you want to get a climbing gym, uh, a climbing wall for kids in your in your community, check out OneClimb.org and just do it. Just make it happen. This is something that you can do. All right. Um, BRAD Foundation also is a great one to get involved with. Follow Kevin on Instagram, all that stuff. All right. Inspiring person who's done inspiring things. And watch Don Wall. I'm giving you so much homework. I get it. But whatever. It's, you know, you've got things to do. Watch Don Wall and then do all the rest of it. All right. Thanks. Kevin, I'll see you in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, Todd. All right. There we go. Another episode. This one, this one with quite an inspiring guy. And if you haven't seen Don Wall, check it out. It's a great follow on to listening to this podcast, getting the rest of the story. So I highly recommend checking out Don Wall. If you're in the Bay Area, check out Sessions and uh, get to rock climbing. I've already, since since this was recorded, I've looked up in the LA area climbing gym so I can get my kids into checking it out, seeing if they're all for it, especially listening to Kevin talk about how climbing is one of our natural, what did he say, not motivations, motive sources, motive powers, climbing, running, walking, it's natural in us, and if we are can get to our kids before it sort of disappears and we stop telling them to stop climbing on things get off that fence ah you know maybe uh congratulate them for being nimble and getting up on that fence so that they will be safer more balanced people in the future and they won't be the ones who are falling off of things because they weren't practicing it naturally as a kid anyway i digress i hope you enjoyed this conversation with kevin and i hope you enjoy next week's conversation which is going to be with brendan leonard founder of semirad.com writer outdoor enthusiast um has a new book on running called Why I Hate Running, but he doesn't. No, he doesn't, but it addresses some of the common sort of um, disconnects and dislikes about running and it helps people kind of get over them a little bit. Uh, and if you're not into running, it's still a great podcast. All right, so until then, stay nice, everyone. <laughs>
just become 10% more nice And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice And all we ask is that you just become 10% more So what? Big deal.